Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. Two or three weeks ago, we began a survey through this book, and there we discussed chapters 1 and 2. The introduction really goes chapters 1, 2, and then chapters 3, verses 1 to 6. We'll begin tonight with verse 7 and the following. Hear now this, the word of the living God. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishiathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan, Rishiathim, eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the, and the Lord delivered Cushan, or Shiathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, or Shiathim, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Please be seated. Our Father, we're thankful for this, this book of Judges. It's a unique book, and I pray that we will see what it adds to the canon. This plays an important role, as does each book in its own right. And I pray that we will benefit from the peculiar events that take place in this chapter. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and help us to benefit, uh, perhaps in even ways that, that we would not fathom. For by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can work mightily, and I pray you will. In Christ's name, amen. What we have this evening are three events, three judges, three heroes. The first one we just read about, Othniel, and then we'll read about two more. The next two are quite interesting, this first one, somewhat vanilla, but these next two, which we'll spend the majority of our time on, are peculiar. That's the word I'll use. They are peculiar. They are extraordinary. God uses peculiar people to achieve his people's salvation. Let's jump into this just straight away because there's a lot of territory to cover. I'm going to go over this in, in three headings and then I have four or five applications here at the end. The first heading, we're going to cover the first judge, and that's the typical judge's cycle. The typical judge's cycle. As I said, a few weeks ago, we began our walk through the book of Judges, and we covered the first few chapters of the book. And there we saw a pattern that begins to emerge, and this pattern is what some refer to as the judge's cycle. It goes something like this. 
The people of Israel sin, and this angers God. God sends Israel's enemies to discipline Israel. And after some time, Israel cries out for relief. And then lastly, God sends a judge. A judge is a ruler, and that ruler saves Israel. So four steps. The people of Israel sin. This angers God. Israel's enemies discipline Israel. Israel cries out. God sends a judge. So this introduction of the book, as I said, stretches to about three, six, and then in this first several verses with Othniel, we have really a, what I'm going to call a typical judge's cycle. Before we get there, by way of reminder, this book takes place over the span of hundreds of years, and so in many cases, one judge's cycle of apostasy and deliverance will often span a generation or longer. Some of the judges overlap with one another. And at this time, during this book, Israel was in various states of, of unity and disrepair. So firstly, we have Othniel. And you can see verse 7. Here's the cycle. The children of Israel did evil. Then they... It says they forgot the Lord their God. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they forgot the Lord completely, but they forgot his salvation. They forgot his goodness. They forgot specifically how God had provided for them in the past. Instead of worshiping God, they worshiped a false God. They served the Baals and the Asherahs. So it's the first step. They apostatize. Second step, verse 8. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Third step, this is verse 9. You see how smoothly this is going so far? The rest of Judges is not like this. Verse 9, they cry out to the Lord. And then there we have Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, is raised up. It says, verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war. And the Lord delivered the people. So this, this enemy here, Cushan or Shiatham, this is, is basically Cushan, wicked, wicked, or double wickedness. And he's the king of Mesopotamia. And as one scholar has said, Mesopotamia is a superpower at this time. That's what we need to know. Mesopotamia is a superpower. And then little old Israel, and really little old Judah, And this little old judge named Othniel delivers them. And we see that. There's not a lot of detail. And then verse 11, the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel dies. That's it. This first episode is vanilla. And here's what Dale Ralph Davis says about this. It is likely that we have this first episode in such a stripped-down style precisely so that we will see clearly what is most essential, the activity of Yahweh. So what we have here is a typical judge's cycle so that you and I and the people of Israel can kind of get the gist of what's going to go on the rest of this book. We have a prototype, if you will, and it's a very simple four, five verses of what happens throughout the rest of the book. Then we get to Ehud. And now, things will go a bit 
sideways. I haven't read this text yet. Perhaps some of you are familiar with this, but I want to make a few uh, introductory caveats, if you will. I have wrestled with this text. I have laughed at this text. I have winced at this text, just like you, uh, I'm sure, have as well. I'm going to quote a scholar again, and, and I like this, and, and I, a number of the modern commentators are actually picking up on, on the joke, but, but not all of them. And so here's what one scholar says. The one trouble with the commentaries, most all of them are so serious. Of the eight or nine I consulted, not one of them seemed to get the joke. Fortunately, Israel found this story entertaining. That's Dale Dale Ralph Davis again. So there is a joke to be had. And in in his estimation, in in another scholar's estimation, whom I I respect, Jim Hamilton, he says we should laugh at this. That's part of the point. This is satire. This is meant to be laughed at. And you will see there are details here that are laughable, that, that will cause us to laugh. So let's now dive in. This second heading I'm going to call Peculiar Heroes. Peculiar Heroes. I have in mind here the two remaining judges in this chapter, Ehud and Shamgar. But keep in mind also that Deborah and Gideon and a number of the other judges could fit into this category as well. A number of the judges have something peculiar about them. They do not fit the typical mold. I'm not suggesting that they're sinful. I'm just saying that they're atypical. So let's dive in. Verse 12, we see the beginning of the cycle again. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The city of Palms is likely Jericho. Remember Jericho, you're not supposed to plant another city in the city of Jericho lest there be a curse placed upon your people. That's exactly what this people did. Verse 15, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Okay, there's our hero, our peculiar hero. He's left-handed. Interestingly, Benjamin means son of the right hand or son of my right hand. So Benjamin, son of my right hand, a left-handed man. Okay, there's some wordplay already going on here. Now, for what it's worth, I don't know that this is, this, is, this is a bad thing to be left-handed. We do get, in, in English, the word sinister from the Latin. This is, this is left-handed. People who are left-handed are devious. They're tricky. They're, they're surprising. And, and that will play a, a role in this. In fact, when we go through this book of Judges, we do not get physical descriptions all that often. So when there is a physical description, or if there is a detail added, we must pay attention to it. If there is a detail added like this, almost surely it's going to play a crucial role in the event that will take place. 
With that said, notice verse 17. There is another physical descriptor. This of the king, Eglon. I'll say it. It's, it's pointed, isn't it? Eglon. Now, he was a very fat man. That's what it says. And it's meant to strike us. You immediately should focus in and see, okay, the author wants me to know this. And by author, I mean the divine author. The Holy Spirit is putting that here for us. It will play a role in the story. Interestingly, Eglon means little cow or little calf. All right? Could it be more obvious? He is a little calf. A little calf. Now, verse 14, the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab. Okay. Let's, let, me, let me translate it now. The children of Israel served the little calf. Does that sound familiar? The children of Israel serve a calf? It seems like there's an echo here to Exodus 32. Remember Israel serving the golden calf? There seems to be purposeful wordplay here. Eglon. The little calf, a very fat man, was served, or you could say, there's some serve, worship, by the people of, of Israel. And so Israel, as a result, have to, they take in tribute to this king. That insight, by the way, is by Jim Hamilton, who is really good on these things. Verse 15. I'm sorry, verse, let me... Let me, secondly, let me, let me mention something about Shamgar before we get into any more, any more details. Look down at verse 31. This is our other peculiar hero. The other peculiar hero is Shamgar. Just a brief note, there's only really one line in here about him. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath. And it says he killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. So we don't know a lot about Shamgar. There is just a little bit of information here. But what most scholars do know about him is that he was almost surely a foreigner. So again, peculiar that God is going to raise up this this left-handed man, son of the right, Benjamin, son of the right hand, left-handed man. So there's something peculiar going on there. And now a foreigner, Shamgar, is going to be raised up. Even more, to quote a scholar, in Canaanite mythology, Anath was a consort of Baal and Canaanite goddess of war. So when it says that he's the son of Anath, it seems like he is, he's, he's not just a foreigner, he's, he's, he's on the other side. So somehow or the other, God is using a foreigner to deliver his own people. So like Ehud, He is a peculiar hero. He is a peculiar deliverer. He is a foreigner. All right, third heading. It's the last heading, and we'll spend a little more time here. Third heading, peculiar means of salvation. Peculiar means of salvation. 
picking up in verse 16. Ehud made himself a dagger. This is our hero again. It was a double-edged and a cubit in length, and he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. And so he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So the tribute is most likely produce, and perhaps he's actually getting fat off of the people of Israel. They're bringing tribute to him, and he has extra produce, and he's become a big king. Another note, this is from Miles Van Pelt. There are this, this edged, two-edged sword. You could, you could say this is a two-mouthed sword. Later, this sword will have a message for the king. So the sword with the mouth will have a message. Verse 18, when he finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Notice that detail there. So our hero, he turns back from the stone images. We don't know where exactly he's at. We don't exactly know where the stone images are at. But we do know the detail that he turns back from the stone images. It's like this hero of ours turns away from the idolatry. And he goes back with the mission to kill this foreign king. And he says, I have a secret message for you. And the king, in his foolishness, says to everyone else in his cohort and in in his palace, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So the king says, oh, okay, I'll I'll hear your secret message. And And the king actually clears everyone out, and Ehud came to him. Remember, Ehud had created this dagger, and he put it on his right thigh. Now, that is an element of surprise. Remember, he's left-handed, and this will come into play in just a moment because they're expecting a right-hander to pull from the other side. So it's a surprise, perhaps to the king, but perhaps to any bodyguards that were around. They're expecting a dagger on the other side. So the king arose from his seat, and he arises, it seems, to receive this message from God. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The king was not expecting it. Remember, right outside the door are all his men, all these other soldiers. They had just been cleared out. Somehow this was so quick that no one else heard it. That's the element of surprise. That's where our left-handedness comes in. Verse 22, the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked him. Now, if you notes, that, that says entrails. It's the New King James Version. If you look at the ESV, it's going to translate that dung. That's a better, I think, way of looking at it. Even some of the older commentaries would view it this way. These, this, is, this is human feces that, that came out of him upon the thrust 
of the dagger. This is excrement. This is indeed dung. Now listen to Matthew Poole on this, because Matthew Poole is going to get very specific. He's going to say that the excrements don't just, don't just come out the stomach. They, they come out of the proper place. They come out where they normally come out. His excrements came forth not at the wound, which closed up. Remember that closed up, the fat over the sword? But at the fundament, as is usual when persons die, either a natural or violent death. So human feces comes out of him from the fundament. When Ehud escapes, there will be a trumpet that blasts, okay? And he's going to gather his people, and he's going to go down, and he's going to kill the Moabites. He's going to win the victory. Now, this, this, this is part of the story, okay? Verse 27 is thrust. It just so happens that that's the same word for trumpet blast. So trumpet blast, verse 27, and it seems like there's some wordplay. So the moment he daggers him and the feces comes out, there's a trumpet blast. It's like the author is mocking the king here. Do you see what's going on? This is going to stick in the memory, and that will be one of the application points. And is this not unlike Elijah? Remember, he's, he's mocking the false prophets, calling out to them. Is your God relieving himself? It seems like that's what's going on. Let me, let me get back to the, to the story here. Ehud went out through the porch, and he shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. So he did this quickly. He did this swiftly. And we don't exactly know what this building looked like, but he escaped. Now, he doesn't just go outside. It appears that he actually walks past all the guards. So he, somehow he slips out of that room, and he walks down a hallway because no one expected him to be in there. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the room were locked. So they see Ehud leave. They're like, oh, he left. Let's go check on the king. They go check on the king, and they see that the door is locked. And so they say to themselves, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool of the chamber. Okay, this is literally, he is covering his feet. Covering his feet is a, is a euphemism for relieving himself. He's probably in the cool chamber relieving himself. Perhaps the smell tipped them off to that. It's possible that relieving, that, that, that covering his feet could be translated, he is, he is sleeping from what I've looked at, I think this is, he is relieving himself. Verse 25, they wait till they were embarrassed. So they wait outside the door. Remember, their job is to attend to the king. They wait till they were embarrassed. And that's a key verse. The Moabites are embarrassed. 
I think that should, should say something to us by the end of this. And still he had not opened the doors of the, room, of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. So he is dead. Now verse 26, Ehud had escaped while they delayed. That's key. He did it silently. He escaped and he goes past the stone images. An interesting detail again. He walks past these old idols and he goes back to his people and he rallies them. The trumpet is blown and he says, follow me for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And this was not necessarily like planned. We have no indication that Ehud had tipped anyone off. The people had submitted to the Moabites for 18 years. This is a radical change in mentality. And that's why I think that there's these little points here about he, he goes past the stone images. He turns away from the stone images. Ehud was rejecting the idolatry. And he goes, he gathers the troops, and they go down, and they defeat them, and then the land has rest for 80 years. By the way, verse 29, it says able-bodied men, the, the New King James says stout men of valor. That's the same word, really. These are, you could say stout. One translation says robust. You could also say fat. The troops are fat like their king is the idea. The other peculiar salvation is from Shamgar. Shamgar is used in an interesting way. Perhaps he was by himself when he kills the 600 Philistines. But whether he was by himself or with a small group, either way, the point is it is a miracle. And it's peculiar. He defeated them with an ox goad. An ox goad is, is typically a long tool, think seven or, or eight feet long, a wooden tool used for driving oxen. And it would have some sort of metal head, maybe iron, and it would be pointy. It's not a weapon. It could be used as a weapon. Many people could kill others with them. But the, the point is, is this is not even a weapon, and he killed 600 Philistines. And this rings of Samson, who later killed Philistines, a thousand of them, with a donkey's jawbone. The point is, is that God uses extraordinary means peculiar means in these cases to show that it is he that is achieving the salvation. It's a funny story, I get that. But the point is quite serious. God achieves the salvation. It's not the judge. It's not Shamgar who happened to be so strong and skilled. It's God employing a man, even a foreign man. It's God employing a man with an ox goad to defeat 600 other men. Matthew Henry says it like this, it is no matter how weak the weapon is if God direct and strengthen the arm. 
An ox goad, when God pleases, shall do more than Goliath's sword. And sometimes he chooses to work by such unlikely means that the excellency of the power may be of God. So the messages in this chapter are really one and the same. Ehud and Shamgar, it's the same message. God uses peculiar heroes. He uses peculiar means in order to achieve the salvation of his people. Israel had forgotten God. Remember that. Even though they came through the Red Sea, even though this this wonderful exodus and all of these miracles over Pharaoh, they had forgotten God within just a few generations. And God will send a series of judges and prove himself over and over and over again to not only be powerful, but to be merciful. And though we are not there yet, I believe the same idea will be apparent in chapter 4. God uses Deborah, a woman. You could say a peculiar hero. Later, God uses Gideon, a man from an unlikely family and tribe. This is quite obvious. One of the themes that the divine author wants us to pick up on. The Holy Spirit wants us to see this as a pattern. Now, as Americans... We're kind of used to this in some ways because we like the underdog story. But there's a key difference here. There is a fundamental difference. This book, when I say Shamgar, when I say Ehud, these are not characters. And, and And if you want, I could say these are not stories. This is history. This is actual. These are events that took place in actuality. And this book, as we've already seen so far, is connected to other books. I mean, you can see the theme already, can't you? These deliverers are, are, are odd in their own way. They're coming in unexpected ways. And then you get to the New Testament and people are going, this is the Messiah? This isn't who we expected. And Jesus should have... Have you read the book of Judges? God uses unlikely means. A man born in Bethlehem in a manger. He was a baby. Born of a woman. And he saves all who come to him in faith. Now four or five applications here. I'm going to call these lessons learned. Lessons learned from this first chapter, this third chapter of Judges. Uh, First lesson is this. God creates a memorable salvation. God creates for us a memorable salvation. This is part of the point. Commentator named Schwab says this. The whole account of Eglon's assassination is an ethnic joke against the Moabites. But some today argue that Insulting, debasing humor has ceased to be considered funny in the modern world. We are supposed to laugh at the stupid Eglon. We are supposed to laugh at his girth. We are even supposed to laugh at the fact that he may have suffered from a malady of his bowels. The, the point is, is that this should, this should stick in our minds. It sticks, I think, this story into the minds 
of our children. Try telling the story of Ehud to an eight-year-old boy. He will, or an eight-year-old girl. I've done so. I think they'll remember it. But it's key that they remember the point of the story, that God is, God is in charge. God is sovereign. God is going to use interesting means to achieve his salvation. Deuteronomy 6, these words which I command you today shall be in your hearts. We're supposed to keep the word of God in our hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Why does God have the Jews write these things all over the place? It's so that they'll stick in our minds. Why does God use peculiar judges? So that it'll stick in our minds. He's going to make this point over and over and over again. Faithless Israel, how do you want me to save you next? I'll use a foreigner and he'll use an ox goad. God condescends, and he makes his word comprehensible. And part of that that condescension is that he makes it memorable. Second application, this for the unbeliever. If you are not a Christian, perhaps you refuse to believe what the Bible teaches because it's simply too strange. Uh, this, This may be an interesting week for you. God does indeed love the weak, the destitute, the left-handed, the foreigner. What, what religion is there that's, 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 so, that's so welcoming? He will welcome any sinner to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter how peculiar your sin is. It doesn't matter if you've never met anyway. Anyone who has sinned in the particular way that you have sinned, the gospel of Christ is that he died for each and every sin. No matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. Sin is, sin is among other things, it's embarrassing. But Christ will wipe away that shame. He will wipe it away. He will cleanse you off The fitness he requires, to quote the hymn, the only fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. That's that's what these people hear. This is is all of us. We've felt our need of Christ, and so we've come to him, and he's washed us, and he cleanses us from our shame. Third application. This one thinking of spouses, this application, does this book, does this change, does this change the way you feel about your spouse? Perhaps you've married a left-handed spouse. Perhaps you've married, perhaps you found that you are married to a peculiar person. Does this story change the way that you feel about him or her? I think it should. How does God view the peculiar person? 
Well, apparently, the Spirit comes upon the peculiar person. The Spirit saves the peculiar person. The peculiar person becomes a part of salvation history. Does this change how you may feel within the church? Perhaps there's peculiar people who are your neighbors or who you work with. Does this change the way that you view them. Our differences should not inhibit us from valuing one another. Remember the scripture from 1 Corinthians 12. Those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body. The point is unity. And we should value each member of the body. We should value each and every one. Then lastly, this is an, an application that I, that I came to kind of late. God saves a remnant from every people, even the Moabites. God saves a remnant from every people. Okay, so many of you know we we had a baby um, two or three weeks ago. And this is actually the first time I think I've preached since our baby was born. And we named her Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth was a Moabite. And the very next uh, passage that I preach on is about the idolatry of the Moabites, the nastiness of the Moabites. The very next text that I preach mocks the Moabites. Yet even from this people, even after this this people's king is mocked, it's clear that God will save a remnant from every people. Ruth chapter 1. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left. And her two sons, they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Mahlon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. And then you see chapter 3. She goes in to Boaz and she sits at the foot of the bed and by the end of the book, Ruth is, is not only brought into the people of God, she's part of the very line of Christ. Naomi said this, Boaz said this, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. And he brings her into the fold. He brings her into the fold. God will indeed save a remnant from every tribe and tongue and nation. And not only that, he will use the Gentiles, even we ourselves, to be a part of that great infolding of all of Christ's sheep. Just as he used a Moabite to be part of the line of David 
and of the line of Christ our Savior. That's how far his mercy extends. So let's praise him and seek him anytime we are in need. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this book of Judges. May we be blessed by it, be encouraged by it, be energized by it, Lord. We want to be a people who serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I thank you for your great mercy. There is not a people on earth to which you will not extend your love. And it is marvelous in our eyes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.